Studios of WORQ in Wisconsin. This is the Stand Up for the Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up for the Truth. Hey there, it's Crash Connell. Hey, Mary. Hey. Have not seen you since last month. <laughs> that is correct. Fresh new podcast. It is September 1st. 2023. A couple of weeks ago, we had a special guest on, and we had all kinds of tech, technical issues and uh, plain spiritual warfare. So we said, we're going to do this again, and this time we're not going to promote it. <laughs> so we're not, we didn't want to give uh, any of the enemies a heads up. So we have a very special return guest from a couple of weeks ago. We got a lot of things to cover today, yes, Mary. Yes, we sure do. We're going to try again with John Haller, hopefully. Uh, like Crash said, we won't have any of those glitches. We are thankful for his time and energy today. I know he's a busy man. We were talking right before the, the program started today about all the details that are out there about prophecy. You know, a few years ago when we were still at maybe 10,000 feet and, and dropping a little bit in, in our view of prophecy, it's a good point. Well, this is a global economy. This is a global government. This is a global, you know, spirituality. Now there are so many details coming to life and to light and everything is connected. So this should be an interesting program this morning. Let's open with scripture and prayer this morning. Psalm 130, the whole thing. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive, attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Won't you pray with me this morning? Lord, let it be said of us that we watch for you more than those who watch for the morning. We look forward with great anticipation to the fulfillment of all your promises to your people. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for prosperity, for protection from her enemies, and we know that nothing significant can happen there without um, your hand in it. And we thank you for your faithfulness to them because you are a God who keeps his promises and to your church also. So we lift up the program today um, and our guest John as he continues to point people to your soon return. Strengthen, enable him for whatever you have for him. Protect his health and keep him and Pam safe in their travels. Pastor, lawyer, teacher, known for his weekly prophecy updates. Uh, John is pastor and elder of Fellowship Bible Chapel, FBC, and his prophecy updates are available on the Fellowship Bible Chapel YouTube channel. Welcome back, John. How are you? Well, I'm uh, approaching this with a little bit of trepidation, given the uh, absolute uh, fiasco that we had the last time that I was on. <laughs> you know, I've noticed that as I, um, I do sometimes at, at home, I, I do things at church and I have a team that helps me that sometimes I do things at home and I'll post on Facebook. I'm doing a live update at 7 p.m. or I'm doing stand up for the truth, uh, you know, on whatever day. And I've noticed the last few times I've, I've posted in advance, I have all kinds of audio problems. And maybe I'm just being paranoid, and maybe I don't know what I'm doing. 
but like last night I, I did a live update on YouTube, uh, on our YouTube channel and I didn't announce it in advance. I didn't tell anybody about it and everything was perfect hmm. in terms of sound, video and all of that. But it seems like if I announce it in advance, like I did the last time I was on, everything goes haywire. So maybe, like, again, maybe I'm just being paranoid. I don't think that I'm that important that anybody would try to silence my voice anyway. Uh, but if they are, I take it as a compliment. But hopefully things will go better today. We're, we're using the old technology of cell phones. <laughs> the old technology. Uh, instead of, yeah. instead of this, uh, all these fancy mics and everything over the Internet. Yeah. So hopefully today will go better. Yes, here's hoping. Um, yeah. and we want to start right off the bat, John. we got to talk about Israel because there is so much going on. Um, there's the Lebanon border issue, the UN, they want to get the UN involved. There's the Temple Mount issue with Saudi. There's Saudi and China, Saudi and Iran. John, help us sort out all these interconnected details because, like I said earlier, everything is interconnected and it's getting harder and harder to sort things out. So can you just kick us off with yeah, what's going on in I, Israel? I think I want to swerve off the outline. <laughs> this is what I always used to do on day was uh, kind of swerve off the outline right off right <laughs> off the bat just to kind of keep him on his toes. Yeah. But I think what's going on on the internal political in Israel is 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 really really is really pretty important. And and I I'm very concerned with the way this is going to go. Uh, Caroline Glick has a great article up right now about. Um, uh, I just saw it this morning at uh, JNS.org, which I think is one of the more news sites for Israel, Israeli news right now. And she she's talking about the fact that th- there's a war going on in Israel between the left and right, and there's a lot of parallels to what's going on in Israel to what's going on in the United States with the Trump indictments and that sort of thing. And, and on that, just let me sort of opine. Uh, the Georgia case is absolute, complete, legal nonsense. Mm-hmm. And what they've done now is they've, they've drug in 18 people, Trump and 18 others, or Trump and 17 others. They've indicted all of his lawyers. And this is a message being sent by the left and the Biden administration in this country. Don't you dare challenge us in any way because we will destroy you. It's called lawfare. So now we have four indictments. We have a civil case against Trump. And now they brought in all the lawyers and a lot of people that really didn't do anything. One guy was denied bail for several days, put in one of the most dangerous jails in America. And the thing that's troubling about this is that the left does not care if they destroy your life. Uh, I think we see this going on with the lady uh, in in Colorado, who's being attacked? I think you may have I may have heard you talk about that. that because she has not towed the line, and even though the I don't think the state is doing anything with her, the leftists are going out there and just destroying her business. They are destroying her life intentionally. We see this happening so much. So what's happening in Israel is also a form of lawfare from the left. Uh, there is currently pending before the Israeli Supreme Court, Israel Supreme Court, a petition to remove Netanyahu from office and effectively undo the democratic elections that were held in November of 2021 uh, mm. or 20, 2022. 22, I'm sorry. Right. And 
And the, the, the head of the Supreme Court, Esther Hayoud, she is the president of the Supreme Court. She's term limited out. I think she's turned 70, and she has to leave office in September. But the concern is that what she's going to do is she's going to maybe grant this petition under the Supreme Court, under her and some of the other leftists that have been in control of it now for about 30 years. They've changed the standing rules. In the United States, if you bring a case, you have to show that you have something at stake in the action. So if you if you bring an action against the government, the first thing the court's going to do is, well, how does this affect you? Are you, do you have standing to bring the case? They've relaxed those rules in Israel, and anybody can bring a case. So, of course, the left is engaged in a lot of lawfare. So they've, they've trumped up. But for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. they've trumped up some indictments against Netanyahu that are incredibly weak. They violated the law using some software and surveillance. I mean, a lot of this sounds very familiar, similar to what's going on here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And they brought these indictments against Netanyahu, and the interim court, the trial court, called the prosecutor and Netanyahu's attorneys in a couple months ago and said, you know, um, prosecution, you're you're not making your case. Your case is, you, you haven't made the case. I think you need to resolve this in some fashion. <clears throat> now, what the leftists wanted to do to resolve the case is to get Netanyahu to agree to resign and never run for office again. That's, that's the main goal. But now they have this petition. They entered into some agreement with the indictments and and he's not been convicted of anything that's the important thing he's just been indicted and so now they're taking that and they're saying well you have a conflict of interest in engaging in any kind of judicial reform you violated your agreement on the conflict of interest thing so you should be removed from office so and then the same left will go out and say that trying to go through the Knesset and enact judicial reform, whether you agree with it or not, that's un- you're, that's against democracy. You're against democracy, but we're going to remove you from office by a judicial decree. It's, it's totally out of control. They're doing the same thing with Trump here. There's a provision in the 14th Amendment that was enacted after the Civil War that says if you engage in an insurrection, you're barred from running for office. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that that was limited to the people who had served in the Confederate Army in World War or in the Civil War here in the United States. Now they're saying is, well, Trump's being indicted for an insurrection. Therefore, any secretary of state in the United States can determine that, yes, this amendment applies to him because there's no provision in the amendment as to how it's enforced. So they will say, okay, all you have to do is any secretary of state in the United States can remove him from the ballot. And right now, I think there's a very, very good chance that uh, four or five states will remove Trump from the ballot for the 2024 election, even if he's the nominee. This is just insanity. Yeah, it really is. So I think you need to watch the political situation in Israel because the enemies of Israel in the states surrounding Israel, like Iran and Syria and other countries, are watching the political situation and saying, okay, now may be the time. 
for us to move against Israel because Israel is weak. Mm. Mm. So that's sort of the the ultimate backdrop to that. So now I think maybe we need to move on to the Saudi, uh, well, the Abraham Accords, Saudi Arabia, Saudi peace plans, the Palestinians, and all these things that are happening. Yes, there's a lot. Right now, interestingly enough, they're happening in the lead-up to the U.N. meetings that start in mid-September, and they're also leading up to the period of time where we're celebrating, I don't know if we're celebrating, we're recognizing the 30th anniversary of this Oslo Accords Mm -hmm. that were done on the White House lawn in the Clinton administration, September 13th, 1993. I happened just by chance, I was in in D.C. on business on uh, the 13th and 14th of September that year. I, I went down the day after the Oslo Accords signing on the White House lawn and saw one of my friends from high school who was a congressman at the time, a very liberal Democratic congressman, but a very good friend of mine. And we spent a good part of the day together, and he was talking about what he had witnessed on the White House lawn the day before, which, interestingly enough, that's where Clinton made Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister of Israel at the time, sign or uh, shake hands mm-hmm. with Yasser Arafat, yeah, this horrible, evil terrorist. Yeah. I mean, he almost, he sort of forced them together. And Israel's been living with the Oslo Accords ever since. They've been through a couple intifadas. And watching what's going on there on a day-to-day basis, Mary, I'm not so sure that we're not in another, uh, the beginnings of or in the midst of another intifada, uh, the Palestinians against Israel. There, there were some ramming attacks, um, shootings. Uh, there was a mother driving uh, with her, her daughter uh, and maybe one other person in a car in the South Hebron Hills down there, Hebron, about 30 miles south of Jerusalem. She was shot and killed in front of her daughter. Oh my. Uh, I think she was a, like a preschool teacher, mm. uh, by all estimates, a very nice lady. And, and th- there's just too much. There was a guy stabbed at a light rail stop in uh, uh, north of the old city in Jerusalem. In oh, fact, wow. it was a light rail stop that I went through when I was there in December. The guy waiting for the light rail was stabbed. There was some ramming attacks. I mean, this is, there's a lot of things going on. So the, because the perception, I think, in the radical Muslim world and the radical Palestinian world is that Israel's weak and now is the time for us to attack. Yeah. Well, with the excuse- And that comes against the backdrop of all this stuff with the Saudis. Well, and then what's going on in the north, too. One of the articles you had sent me, Israel's on the verge of war with Hezbollah. It's, uh, it says the Jewish state is probably closest it's been to a military campaign in Lebanon in decades. What's going to happen in the north? And then the, the other headline about the U.N. possibly jumping in on, I mean, you know, they're not exactly useful in this, but what do you, what do you think is going to happen in the north? Well, is it so just going to spill over? On, yeah, let's, let's try to unpack this. So there's a great article at memory.org. Uh, memory stands for the uh, Middle East Media Research Institute, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, memory dot and they they put up a lot of they monitor Arab press, they monitor Arab television, yeah, right, uh, and they have a great article, uh, their daily brief from just the other day, and it's it's titled "Signs of Poss- August thirty first, just mm-hmm. yesterday." 
signs of possible war in September to October. And so let me just sort of uh, recap those. Yeah, thank you. The first is growing provocations by Hezbollah on Israel's northern border. Uh, if you follow, and I follow him pretty closely, I do a lot of uh, translating of uh, various Lebanese uh, newspapers and websites and television channels. <coughs> Nasrallah, who rarely ever comes up above ground, because he knows if he does, the Israelis will probably assassinate him. He's the leader of Hezbollah, the party of God. It's a Shiite, radical Shiite institution. It effectively controls the country of Lebanon right now. The Lebanese government has been in a state of collapse for a number of years. They don't really have much of a government. Their economy has completely collapsed. People are trying to leave if they can get out. Uh, remember, they had that big explosion in the harbor two years ago, yeah. uh, two years ago, August the 6th. And that, and it's not really been repaired. There were hundreds of people killed in that explosion. It was one of the most powerful, maybe the most powerful non-nuclear explosion in history. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a lot of, very similar to the, the materials that were used in the Oklahoma City bombing back in the 90s. And the video is incredible. Day. People can watch that video on YouTube if you haven't seen that. It, it, it's an incredible explosion. Yeah, there's one interesting video where the lady, she was actually, they were in the midst of their wedding on, you know, many blocks from where the thing come, and you can see the shockwave come through and just sort of kind of, it didn't injure anybody, but it, it, they were blocks and blocks away in the urban area there of Beirut. So, Growing provocations by Hezbollah on the northern border. Hezbollah continues to try to <clears throat> force its way into different parts of Israel. Uh, they've erected some things across the border. The border's in dispute. Uh, there's a little town called Gishar. It's If you go to the Tel Dan uh, on a tour in Israel and you go to the high holy place where King Jeroboam put up the golden calf mm -hmm. after the split of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom after the death of Solomon, um, you can see Gajar up the hill. Of, I think it's probably two miles away. It's been part of Israel for a long time. Then the UN came in and said, well, we need to divide the city and make it half Lebanon, half Israel. So what Hezbollah did was to sort of feel out Israel and how they would respond, they erected some tents on the Israeli side of the border. <laughs> and that, uh, uh, so they and and they continually they're they're coming across that there's tunnels and that type of thing. If you really want to follow what's going on on the northern border, Alma Research in Israel does a fantastic job. Okay, uh, Israel-Alma.org. Israel-Alma A L M A dot org is the website, okay. and they put up different reports all the time, mostly focused on Hezbollah and what's going on in the north of Israel. So it's been a concern of Israel for some time that Hezbollah is going to unleash large portions of their rocket brigades. I can remember Mary Chuck Missler and others talking about this 20 years ago. Yeah. And one of the things they had noted was that for whatever number of missiles Hezbollah had in the, in the, Iranian-backed Shiite groups in 
southern Lebanon and in southern Syria along the Golan, at that time they had about one launcher for every two missiles or rockets that they had. That's a very, very high ratio. Well, why would they have that high ratio? Because they want to unleash a barrage. And so talking to some of the people, uh, for example, General Amir Avivi with the Israeli Defense and Security Forum, who I've been able to meet with a number of times, there's been a concern about what's going to happen when they cut loose with a rocket barrage. Mm -hmm. We see what happens in in, uh, Gaza where they might see hundreds of rockets over a two-week period. We're talking hundreds, maybe thousands of rockets every hour wow. for a sustained period of time. Wow. Iron Dome won't be able to handle it. Okay. Now, Israel is developing laser technology to, um, uh, to, to bring down drones and rockets and missiles, but that has extremely limited range. It's much, much cheaper than Iron Dome. An Iron Dome missile costs between fifty and $100,000 to shoot down one rocket. Wow. And so what Israel does, by the way, when the rockets get shot off, is there's a very complicated calculation that's done almost instantaneously, and that makes a determination. Where's that rocket headed, and where's it going to land if we don't do anything, and is it going to cause any problems? Is it going to land in an open field? <clears throat> We're not going to waste um, a $100,000 Iron Dome missile to do that, to shoot it down. But when they get faced with the brush, so like I said, they have laser technology. Raphael, the company that's developing the laser technology, just came out the other day and said, hey, we've got, we think that within one or two years, we'll have operational laser technology. Well, so what does that do, though, is that gives Hezbollah the window that they have to operate in. And so they're, they've been building up for this for a long time. Mm-hmm. So when Gallant announces, he's the defense minister of Israel, he announces a couple weeks ago, look, Hezbollah, if you do anything, we're going to bomb you back to the Stone Age. <laughs> yeah, I read that That's quote. been the consistent position of Israel. There yes. was the Israeli Air Force guy at the Hezbollah conference in 2017 who essentially who said, listen, if, if we have to do this again with Lebanon, you're going to see, I'll paraphrase what he said since it was in Hebrew, you're going to see shock and awe in the first 20, we're going to do in 24 to 72 hours what it took us 37 days to do in the second Lebanon war in 2006. Mm-hmm. It will stun the world. So they've been talking about that for six years now. Mm. So Galan comes out and says, if Hezbollah, if you do anything, we will bomb you back. We will, we will take you back to the Stone Age. Mm. Now, Hezbollah, through Nasrallah, came out almost immediately and said, yeah, well, we're taking you to the Stone Age. But the best analysis that I can see is that Israel uh, will have to gear up with all of its uh, reserve forces uh, they'll have to get them to the front. Uh, they're doing a lot of exercises now, so they're, I think they're already building up for this. But uh, they expect a lot of casualties in, uh, in the first days of that war, maybe as many as 18,000 Israelis killed in the, in the armed forces and in the civilian wow. population. Well, Galand is we the one... Friends, it, but that's, that's, that's a 
smitten compared to what Israel's going to do to Lebanon. Yeah. Because, listen, this is an existential threat to Israel. And Israel is going to say, we never again is their statement. Mm-hmm. We are not going to do that. When when you look at, I think I sent you some pictures from different uh, websites in Turkey and Iran and mm-hmm. elsewhere about how the Muslim world views Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, and particularly the Dome of the Rock. Now, the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is not a mosque. It's a commemorative building. It is alleged, it is claimed within Islam that this is where Abraham, I mean, Muhammad came and made his night journey to heaven from the rock under the Dome of the Rock. It is pretty clear that that is a myth that was totally created by Islam. And as Israel has come back into the land, it is a myth that has gained more credence and traction. In 1924, the Muslim Waqf, W-A-Q-F, which oversees the Temple Mount. It's interesting, 100 years ago, December 8th, I think, 1917, 106 years ago, the British came into Jerusalem and kicked out the Ottoman Turks. They remember that day. It's interesting, though, that Donald Trump, 100 years, just almost exactly 100 years to the day that the British Empire came into Jerusalem and kicked out the Ottomans, Trump came out and announced, I'm moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. That set off a firestorm in the Islamic world, particularly in Turkey and Iran. Turkey immediately convened a the Council of Islamic Countries in Istanbul. They issued a report. I sent you, I think, uh, the front page of the newspaper from the Yeni Safek newspaper mm-hmm. in Turkey, which is probably the main mouthpiece for the uh, I would call him a dictator, Erdogan, who mm-hmm. runs Turkey, has for 20 years now. Um, I have followed Erdogan is like two days older than I am, so if <laughs> I, you know, so I, the guy's a, a, truly a contemporary of mine. But he um, and, and they issued this thing: we got to deal with the Kuds issue. The, they call Kuds the city of Jerusalem. Yeah. And they call the whole area now the Al-Aqsa compound, whereas before it was just the Al-Aqsa Mosque that's on the southern part of the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock being in the middle, the Golden Dome that you see in all the photographs. Mm -hmm. But they put this in their imagery. And around the same time, Khomeini, the leader, uh, the uh, imam who is the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran published a a number of photographs around this time on his uh, on his website things involving the Temple Mount uh, pictures one of them was a thing that said you see all the people praying um, Mm -hmm. all the leaders of the Islamic parties uh, Hamas Hezbollah with the Dome of the Rock in the background. This is from 2020, and they say, we will pray in, uh, in Al-Quds. <clears throat> and then around the time, that they also published a thing called Palestine Will Be Free, the fi- and they called it the final solution. 
And there's no mistake of the language that Khomeini chose to use or the people who put that up on his website, that this is kind of the core issue in the Middle East to them. This is, this is where they think it all ends. Um, and so they think this is where their Mahdi is going to come um, eventually, and he's going to lead armies to Jerusalem and take them out. You also saw in 2017 in that Yenis effect that the uh, Turks published a map of the Middle East, including the Mediterranean, Northern Africa, Asia, and Europe, and all of the Islamic countries were in green, from Somalia all the way to the west coast of Africa, all the way up into Central Asia, and you see tanks, missiles, submarines, ships, airplanes, jets, fighter jets, all pointed at Israel, which mm-hmm. is in red on the thing. It, it's a map that I, if, if, a, if a Bible prophecy teacher made it up, uh, John, we, we're at that point. We're going to have to take a break, and we can come back to this uh, signs of possible war in September, October. I want to talk a little bit about the High Holy Days. We all kind of hold our breath a little bit when the fall uh, holidays come along, wondering if you know this is going to be the time of some major incursions over in Israel. You never know, but there's always a possibility of clashes over there. Also, there's a headline here, Don't let Saudis have any role on the Temple Mount. Put Israel in charge. Well, I like that quite a bit. So we will be back uh, in two minutes after we hear from our sponsors. So stay with us. Our social media pages are shadow banned. Thanks for your prayers and sharing our posts at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth. My name is Mary Danielson. I'm talking to John Haller today. I call John a researcher's researcher because nobody connects dots like John. And so we were talking about when we left um, signs of possible war in September and October. John, I want you to finish your thought from when we were uh, uh, talking last. And then also let's move on to Saudi Arabia. So what, what were we talking about right at the break there? So what we were talking about was if you took this map that was in Guinea's effect, Erdogan's main mouthpiece newspaper in in Turkey, Mm -hmm. and you put up a map of all the tanks and missiles and subs and everything coming against Israel from all of these countries, if if a Bible prophecy teacher did that, people would say, well, you're crazy. You're a nut. That's Ezekiel 38, 39. You're just making that up. Right. But now... This is a Turkish newspaper in 2017 that's doing it in response to Trump moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Mm. And by the way, on the Temple Mount, in 1924, the Walk published a tourist guide, and it said there's no question that this is the site of Solomon's temples. Now they say that's all made up. The Jews are making that up. The religious Jews and Zionists are making that up. There never was a temple there. And unfortunately, there's some Christians who have a view that the, the Temple Mount was not really where Solomon's and Herod's temple stood. Mm. I think that that view is, uh, per, I personally think that that view is misinformed. So, But any hate mail goes mm-hmm. to Mary at uh, <laughs> 290 on that. But so let's go to the Saudis, because the Saudis is interesting from a historical basis. The Saudi country came into existence about 1932. It was about six or seven, five, six, seven years after they were founded as a country that they discovered oil in Saudi Arabia. 
so they went from a desert nomadic tribal family, the Salds tribe, to what is now the wealthiest family on planet Earth. I mean, they're they're above the Rothschilds and industrialists and the Walmart people and that type of thing. Mm. They're they're close to double the next richest family on the planet. Oh. They control wealth somewhere around one and a half trillion dollars. And they have a crown prince who's very ambitious. He's described as ambitious and ruthless. And I think he's trying to make his mark. He has the city neon that he's building. It's 100 miles long. It's uh, a narrow city. I forget how far across it is. Uh, uh, Probably maybe a little over a quarter mile across. 100 miles long. 1,500 feet tall. He's building uh, this thing called the Mukaba or the Mukab in Riyadh that's also 1,500 feet tall. And in the in the interior of that, it's going to be a lot of AI stuff. And when you look at the cutaway version, he has like what looks like the artist representations of the Tower of Babel that we see mm. in various artist uh, representations of the Tower of Babel. Mm. So he, he wants to be in control. Uh, the Saudi family is known, the royal family, the king is known as the keeper of the two holy mosques in Mecca and Medina, the two holiest places in Islam. <clears throat> there is a theory that, of course, the third holiest site is at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but the crown princes allow publication to be made of this, of, of uh, Islamic scholars debunking that. And there's also been recent publications in Jay and Elson elsewhere that the Saudis want to reconfigure who's in control of the Temple Mount. Israel took the Temple Mount back in 1967. I uh, was under the control of the Jordanians and the Islamic Waqf at the time. Within a week, Moshe Dayan had given it back to Jordan and the Waqf. And so the king of Jordan, King Abdullah, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, is in charge of the Temple Mount. Now, understand that after the Ottomans were booted out sort of lost their influence in Mecca Medina, the Hashemite family, King Abdullah II's ancestors, took over the Holy Mosque in Mecca and Medina. They were kicked out by the Salds, and the Brits thought that they had been helpful against the Ottomans, so they awarded them this new place called Jordan, and they also gave them the Kingdom of Iraq at the time. Now, they Mm. lost control of that, but they were in control of both of those countries. So now the Jordanian family controls Jordan. Very poor country, although research that I've done indicates that the Jordanian royal family from its investments may earn somewhere in the range of a billion to two billion dollar U.S. dollars per year on their investments. Wow, that's a lot of money. Uh, the queen of uh, Jordan right now is a Palestinian, by the way. So they and they have about eighty percent of Jordan is Palestinian. So Jordan wants to keep control of the Temple Mount. But I think the Saudi prince has designs to come in and take control of the Temple Mount. And so there is some thinking that he might allow the temple, the the Jewish people who want to build a temple, to build a temple or structure on the Temple Mount to begin sacrifices. That brings in, you know, we've been reading mm-hmm. about the red heifers. There still appears to be maybe one of so of those that, were brought actually from, I believe, Rockwall, Texas, where I did the conference last weekend with Tom Hughes and Hope for Our Times, to Israel, that they're still qualified 
to be sacrificed and the ashes of the red heifer will be used in ritual and ritual purification ceremonies so they could the Jews could go to the temple mount to the temple and for the priest and everything. So that that's all in play right now. So now what's happened though is that the Saudis still have a lot of oil. They're still I think the second biggest oil producer on the planet behind the United States and just ahead of Russia. They control a lot of oil. They're very, very wealthy. They want to do a lot of things, and and they have their own vision 2030, just like the U.N. has their sustainable development goals. The Saudis have their vision 2030 to transform the kingdom. They have a thing called the Financial Investment Initiative Institute, FII Institute, and that's been one of the main organizations on the planet pushing ESG to get people to back off from oil. Now, why would they do that? Well, when other countries stop producing oil, the Saudis produce their price of oil goes up and they make a lot more money. And they have lifestyles that they have to Mm -hmm. support. Crown Prince has a $500 million yacht. He has a $500 million home in the south of France. So they have, it takes a a little bit of money and cash to maintain that. So... The crown prince has been called ruthless. If you remember when he first came into office, Trump went to Saudi Arabia on his first foreign trip because the Saudis are an important ally to to the U.S. When we were changing off of the gold standard, there were agreements reached with the Saudis that the Saudis would agree to only sell their oil in U.S. dollars. That really helped cement the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency Mm -hmm. of the world. Now we have a government in place, the O'Biden, as I like to call them, the O'Biden regime in Washington, that has come out and they said, oh, you know, Netanyahu's government is an evil government and the Saudis are a pariah state. Now they want to make some kind of peace agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. I don't know that our government has that much influence, but the Saudis see the rise of Iran and the support given, the tacit and sometimes explicit support given by our government to the Iranian government. Hmm. Remember, we just had this hostage deal where the Iranians were given $6 billion. That followed probably $160 billion given at the end of the first, the second Obama administration. This is now the third one. Mm-hmm. And they gave them, so, well, you can only use it for humanitarian aid. Well, okay, so they spend, they get $6 billion for humanitarian aid. Then they take the $6 billion that they have earmarked for humanitarian aid, and what do they do with it? <clears throat> they put it towards uranium enrichment, terror funding, mm-hmm. funding their proxy groups in um, Lebanon and in Syria, along the Golan border, uh, again, go to all the research and you can find the maps that show the terror groups, the Iranian-funded terror groups. And at some point, this is going to break loose. So the Saudis have come in and say, well, we could manage the Temple Mount better than the Hashemite Kingdom of Israel. About a year ago, there was a very, a year ago, there was a very interesting development. It first came out in Al-Arabiya, and then it followed within a day in the Wall Street Journal talking about perhaps a peace plan in the Middle East that has been referred to in a lot of press. And I, I'm about the only one who talks about it. So um, I 
and we always talk about this covenant and peace agreement and everything, but then when something real happens, everybody says, well, that, that can't be it. <laughs> well, maybe it is. And these things happen, as I've said in my talk in Texas last week, all of these things of Bible prophecy seem to happen gradually than suddenly. And I think we're in the suddenly mm-hmm. phase of mm-hmm. a lot of these things potentially coming about. Yeah. So the Saudis want to control the tip amount. And I think sort of the consolation prize that they may suggest, they seem to be suggesting, is giving Jordan control of the Palestinian air areas. Now, the in just the last day, the Saudis came out and said, hey, we're going to Israel's kind of cut off funding for the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. So the Palestinians have come out with a list of things that they want to have it happen, and they want recognition of formal recognition by the UN, and maybe this month, of the Palestinians as a state. I wow. think the Saudis are trying to stop that. Yeah. I think the younger Saudis are tired of the Palestinians just taking money and causing problems. <clears throat> the the Saudis have said, okay, listen, we'll replace the funding that you're losing, Palestinians, but you have to stop what you're doing in Israel right now. You need to calm everybody down and get to control of the situation. And so this is in, we may make Israel give up some of their settlements. Now, I don't think anything mm. formal is going to happen until the king dies. The king is very pro King Salman is very pro-Palestinian. Okay. But it appears that Mohammed bin Salman is sort of approaching this a different way. But in the midst of all this, the Biden administration continues to push what some are now calling a mini JCPOA agreement with the Iranians to allow the Iranians to continue their nuclear development, which we know they're going to use for weapons. And at some point, Israel's got to do something about that. At the same time, our military is doing joint exercises with Israel, for lack of a better term, practicing how they are going to attack Iran. (laughs) That's going on as we speak. But the Saudis are trying to force the U.S. to kind of come back to the Saudi side, to get away from the Iranians. I think this is what's happening. We saw recently that there was a very important meeting uh, of the BRICS countries in Johannesburg, South Africa. The BRICS countries have been around for at least a decade. Uh, There's always been this thinking that, well, these are, you know, their economies aren't that great. Uh, They're not that influential, but they're sort of joining together to kind of fight the, the hegemon of the U.S. dollars, the reserve currency of the world. So the BRICS countries are Brazil, which now has a radical leftist president, and there's a lot of questions about the election down in Brazil, um, whether that election was stolen. Mm -hmm. Sounds familiar, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? Indeed. And and that Bolsonaro has been barred from running for office down there, the former Mm -hmm. president or prime minister president. He's been barred from running for office for at least eight years. Luna was in prison, barred from running office, and then his cronies on the Supreme Court said, oh, well, uh, that that law shouldn't be in place. We're going to let him run. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, here comes this leftist who won. Isn't that uh, coincidence is a very interesting word? So you have Brazil, Russia is the R, 
I is India, C is China, and S is South Africa. So these um, countries constitute about 40% of global GDP. They constitute now about, you know, with China and India, each having over a billion people, close to 50% of the world's population. Uh, they brought in at the meeting, now there was something you know, that they were going to put in a new currency that was going to be gold-backed. I personally think that that's a ruse, that the, some of the biggest countries pushing central bank digital currencies are Brazil and Russia and China. Sure. And I think that the gold-backed thing is a ruse, to, it's sort of a head fake to get people to say, oh, well, it's great that these countries come together, and then they come out with a, a central bank digital currency. So yeah. they didn't come out with a, a, a basic currency, but they brought in six countries. Egypt, and it's kind of a poor country. Ethiopia, it's one of the 10 poorest countries on the planet, and no big deal. They brought in Argentina. Argentina's had a lot of economic problems over the years. But then they brought in uh, three other countries, the United Arab Emirates, who have entered into a normalization agreement under the Abraham Accords with Israel yeah. three years ago. They brought in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. which gives them now maybe 60% of the world's oil supply is controlled by BRICS countries. And they brought in Iran. And with Iran and Saudi Arabia, you're talking... Yeah. About 60% of the world's oil supply is controlled by BRICS countries. Well, so everybody's kind of wondering how this is going to go. Well, and half of global food production, I read that this morning, and that's kind of a, a big, small uh, you know, note there, too. That's a lot. Also, metals used in high-tech industry, they, they will be controlling a lot of that. And 40 nations have expressed interest in joining. Um, so I don't know yeah, what you so do with that acronym. That, <laughs> yeah, that's something in process. And, again, this is an attack. On the U.S. as the central, uh, as the, uh, the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world. I, I'm sort of cautious to say that this is going to happen. This is not going to happen overnight. Sure. This is a process thing. But I think where we are on the prophetic timeline makes this kind of a very interesting development. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, Patrick Wood. Made a comment on a podcast recently, and pray for him. He's recovering from a stroke, mm -hmm. as you know. Um, I think he was just on your show a couple of weeks ago. Yep. I think, yep. but yeah. or he had a stroke right after he was on your show, yeah. I believe. But he um, he made a very interesting point. Now, you know, Patrick is big on technocracy. He's traced the history of technocracy from. Uh, the Dulles brothers in Columbia University and Zbigniew Brzezinski was the national security advisor under Carter mm -hmm. and then very influential on the Clinton administrations as well as a foreign policy advisor. And this technocracy thing has been going on for a long time. Uh, just as an aside, I'll give you an interesting sidebar on this. There was a guy in Canada who is a big technocrat. This is an economic system that they want to put in place. They, they don't believe politics. Politicians know what they're doing. We're the technocrats. We're the scientists. We should be in charge of everything. Okay. One of the, the big leader of the technocracy movement in Canada was a guy named Hambleman. And it was so bad in Canada. Canada was so concerned about it that they, they banned, legally banned the technocrats. Hambleman got upset and he moved to South Africa. His grandson has a fairly well-known name now. His grandson is Elon Musk. 
Fairly well known. Wow. Uh, the richest person on the planet, mm-hmm. current, the per- richest individual on the planet right now. <laughs> so um, it's just very interesting how this thing kind of cycles back around. And as I said, these things happen gradually and suddenly. So Patrick made a very interesting point about the market of the beast because we're always concerned about central bank digital currencies. What's the market of the beast? How is this going to be implemented? I don't think we know yet, but Patrick made a brilliant point. When the abomination of desolation, it appears that the mark of the beast comes after the abomination of desolation that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 24. And after the abomination of desolation takes place, you know, people in Jerusalem are told, flee, get out of there, run for your lives. But they institute this mark of the beast. But the Antichrist and false prophet who institute this mark of the beast, they don't wait until the abomination of desolation takes place. And then they sit around and say, okay, now what we, could we do to control the world economy and human beings and sort of make them worship us? The system is going to be in place, and they're essentially going to be at a place where they just have to flip a switch. So I think all of these things that we see coming together, the climate change, the 15-minute cities, the, the, the uh, C40 cities that have come out and said, well, we want, we want it to be where you won't, by 2030, you won't eat meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you only have uh, the ability to take one flight every other year on a short-haul flight. And they want to control everything. This system is being put into place. And so eventually, it's it's going to be to the place where this false prophet and antichrist will just sort of flip the switch. So I do think all the things that we see going on with climate change, central bank digital currencies, artificial intelligence, uh, on and on and on, all of the things that you know I talk about, Patrick Wood, Alex Newman, J.B. Hickson and everything, this is all coming together. Again, we've passed the gradually stage, and I think right. we're in the suddenly stage. Yeah, we really are. And I wanted, I wanted to talk to you real briefly about uh, Saudi Arabia as far as the petrodollar agreement. They also, uh, part of that was that the U.S. would protect them from any Russian invasion. I found that very interesting because now Sheba and Didan, um, Saudi in Ezekiel? Yeah, in, in Ezekiel 38, uh, I think it's 13, verse 13, talks about when this invasion occurs against Israel from the north. And, and we don't know when this invasion is. Some people right. think it's before this last seven-year period of history. Some people think it's at the beginning. I'm more inclined to think it's towards the end. That's just my right. assessment. But, that, but by the way, that doesn't mean there aren't going to be other wars. That doesn't mean there yeah. could be a war between Israel and Israel. Right. Well, but Saudi, but Saudi sits back and says, what, what are you doing here? Have you come to take a spoil? And I found that interesting in light of the petrodollar agreement, which kind of, I guess, is on the wane, right? Because um, the whole petrodollar well, thing. Israel, Go ahead. Israel is very wealthy, and they're, I forget who talked about it at the conference. might have been Andy Woods. Talk about, you know, there, there's talk about where's all this gold that they had for the Temple of Solomon? And there's yeah. some thinking that they're getting close to discovering that. And the central bank, central banks all around the world have been buying up a lot of gold reserves uh, over the past two years. Yeah, I've heard that. Because there might be something going on. Now, That's all, gold's always been a, a storage of wealth. And there's some thinking that if, if this gold is found in Israel, this would be uh, earth-shattering in financial circles mm. if, if that much gold was discovered. Mm. 
And some think that some people think that it's hidden there and that it's just waiting for the right time to be discovered. And, but people are talking about it now. We know that Israel's also uh, developed a lot of gas reserves off of their off the in the Mediter- eastern Mediterranean. Uh, that is given Israel a huge economic advantage in that they can supply their own gas. They don't need to rely on anybody else. Right. And they can do run these huge desalinization plants to give Israel plenty of water. And a lot of countries in the Arab world don't like that. But now, I don't think Israel's discovered more gas than anybody else in the planet has. It's clear that I think the biggest gas reserves on the planet are in Russia and probably the United States. Um, that's, but they're an important, they have an important thing. And they, they could help supply Europe with gas if they could get it there, but they can't get it there right now. <clears throat> so they're using it themselves. And their economy is one of the best in the world. Uh, their real estate, I was talking to somebody buying a home in Jerusalem, a friend of his buying a home in Jerusalem. And the prices are, you know, like a thousand square foot apartment is going for like three quarters of a million dollars U.S. It's mm. just... Ouch. Insane. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's similar to the housing run up that I think is still going on here, just because of a shortage of housing stocks. Right. So even though interest rates go up, housing prices seem to be hanging in there in many places. So very interesting times. I mean, mm-hmm. I think if I could just give like one overarching theme to what we talked about today is how interconnected everything is. Yeah. So we see, we talk about Saudi Arabia, and um, I think sometimes I would like to have somebody do, maybe we get AI to do sort of a mind map of the discussions I have <laughs> on Stand Up for the Truth <laughs> to show all the rabbit trails that we yes. go down and yes. how maybe they circle back around and connect to something else that we didn't think about when we started talking. Yeah. Well, hey, John, we got one minute here, then we got to wrap it up. One minute. So, so anyway, so look, these are exciting times in which mm-hmm. to live. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jesus said when the disciples of the first coming, you ought to consider yourself blessed that you live at this time. Oh, amen. And I think that we ought to consider ourselves blessed that we live at this time yes. as well. Yes, and to take advantage of every opportunity to share not only just prophecy, but the hope that is within us. I mean, uh, sometimes people, they tune out. They think that this is all hopeless and, and there's nothing more to know or, or understand. But there is so much more to understand and point people to the times. So incredibly important. And I want to remind people of the Great Lakes Prophecy Conference. Watch and be ready September 8th through the 10th. We have uh, Chris Quintana, Curtis Bowers uh, of the Agenda video series, Pastor Jeff Sowald, Calvary Chapel, Madison, Prophecy scholar Tommy Ice, author and speaker David Fiorazzo, and special music from Bruce Carroll. The cost is $35 per person, and you can register at ccappleton.org. You can pre-register if you'd like. Pre-registration closes on Tuesday. You can also just uh, pay at the door. I mean, there's uh, there's always room, and we always have such an incredible, encouraging time. So uh, we're going to wrap it up here. John Haller, thank you so much. We always get so much information from what you share with us. God bless you, brother. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Have a great weekend on purpose.